Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, and as the name implies, it concerns Jesus' final petition in the Lord's Prayer. This petition is simple and straightforward, but if we are thinking at all, it gives rise to a number of questions concerning the nature and purpose of temptation. The complexity of the topic can be seen in the fact that the same Greek word translated temptation in the Lord's Prayer is elsewhere translated trial and test. So which is it? Are they trials, tests, or temptations? Are they good or bad? Should we seek them or avoid them? And what is the source of trials, tests, and temptations? Is it God, Satan, or our own desires? If they come from Satan or from our own sinful desires, is God sovereign over them? Does he use them for good in our lives? And what should be our attitude toward trials, tests, and temptations? Should we be fearful or confident? All these questions and more are implicated by Jesus' simple petition, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so we see once again that Jesus is not simply giving us something to pray. He is putting his truth in our mouths. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning we come to the, the end of the Lord's Prayer, the last petition. And so I want to read together verse uh, 9 of Matthew chapter 6, which gives us our lead in, and then verse 13. Matthew 6, 9 and 13. This is the word of God. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let us pray. God and Father, we pray that now you would open up your word to us by the Holy Spirit and uh, strengthen us uh, by it. Make us strong and glorifying to you that we would benefit from your word and be to the praise of the glory of your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've seen that in the Lord's Prayer, there are three great uh, needs that Jesus has us go to the Father with. The need for provision, give us this day our daily bread. The need to forgive and be forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And now today we come to the third one, which is the need for protection and victory. The need for protection and victory. Lead us not into temptation, Jesus teaches us to pray, but deliver us from the evil one. In the Greek, uh, in in the traditional King James version, it just says deliver us from evil. But in the Greek, the construction, we can see that it's definite and therefore it's referring to actually the evil one, Satan and the devil. And uh, like we saw last week with the petition that we uh, be forgiven of our debts as we forgive our debtors, so it is with this one. If we think about what we're praying, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If we think about it very much at all, there's a cluster of questions that comes to our minds. Now, the same Greek word is translated trial, test, and temptation. 
It is translated temptation in our verse here. And Jesus teaches us here to ask God not to lead us into temptation. But elsewhere, James, for example, tells us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. And that's the same Greek word. James, we translate it trials in James chapter 1. We translate it temptations here. But it's the same Greek word. So Jesus says to pray to the Father to deliver us, not lead us into this thing called temptation or trial, if you will. But James says to count it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith is intended to perfect us and to make us complete so that we're lacking in nothing. And similarly, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, tells us that when we encounter various trials, and it's the same Greek word, um, we are to rejoice. Because the purpose is so that the proof of our faith, which he says is more precious than gold to God, may result in praise and glory and honor to God. So which is it? Are they trials or are they temptations? Are they good or are they bad? Should we seek them or should we avoid them? And there's more questions. James and Peter both suggest that it is God who sends trials, or if you want to say temptations, sends them into our lives to test our faith in order to perfect us. On the other hand, James says that God doesn't tempt anyone. George read that passage to us just this morning. He says that we're tempted when we are carried away and enticed by our own lusts or our own desires. But then Hebrews chapter 11 says very clearly that God tested or tempted, same Greek word, Abraham, when he called upon Abraham to deliver up his only begotten son Isaac and to offer him up as an offering. Elsewhere, as in the temptation of Jesus, and as Jesus suggests in uh, the Lord's Prayer, Satan is the one who is tempting. On the other hand, Matthew tells us expressly that it was the Spirit of God who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So where do trials and temptations come from? Do they come from God? Do they come from within us? Do they come from the devil? If they come from the devil or from our lusts, then the question is, God, is he sovereign over them? Does he use them for good in our lives? And what should our attitude be toward trials or temptations? Should we be fearful? Should we be confident? Well, these are the questions that come to our minds when we consider this petition, if we consider it very much at all. And the key to all of these questions, the key to answering them, is the same key that we saw last week when we considered forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the key is this. We need to remember three things. First, the Father sent His Son not just to take away our sins, but to make us sons. The Father sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, not just to take away our sins, but to make us Sons. The phrase that we find in Hebrews is bringing many sons to glory. That's what the Father was doing through Christ. 
bringing many sons to glory. In the evangelical church and over the last several hundred years, um, we've had such a fixation on the first part of salvation. That is, forgiveness and justification, being forgiven by the atonement provided by Christ and being declared to be righteous in Christ. That's the first part. But the way the Bible presents it is that's just the doorway. That's the doorway you step through to enter into a whole path of life. And that path of life has to, be, has to do with being a son to the Father. It has to do with adoption. So we don't want to disparage or de-emphasize forgiveness and justification, but we want to bring into equal emphasis the fact that that's a starting point. That's a starting point. Now we go forward and we live as sons. That's what God sent his son to do, to adopt us back into his family so that we can walk with him as our father. The second thing we need to remember is, as it says in Hebrews 12, 7, in Christ, the father deals with us as sons. Everything having to do with the Christian life, we need to see it through that lens. That's why the whole Sermon on the Mount is really about What does it mean to be sons of the Father? What does it mean to walk as sons? What does it mean to fulfill the purpose of sons, which is really to be like the Father? What does all of that mean? And so we need to remember that the whole Christian life is a matter of God the Father dealing with us as with sons. And third, we need to see how this works by looking at how the Father dealt with His perfect Son, Jesus. We're, uh, we emphasize the fact that Jesus is the object of our faith, and we should emphasize that. But the Bible places equal emphasis on the fact that Jesus is also the pioneer of our faith. He's also the perfect example of our faith. The reason why we can put our faith in Jesus, the object of our faith, as our Savior, is because He's the perfect man. He's perfectly what it means to be human. He's perfectly what it means to be a child of the Father. So that means that not only is he the object of our faith, but he's also the perfect example of the faith which we are called to have. As it says in Hebrews 12, he is the author and the perfecter. He's the first faithful man to come, to live a life of faith and faithfulness. And he is where we look, where we want to see what that looks like. And so if we also, if we want to understand how God deals with us, since he deals with us as with sons, we need to look and see and how he dealt with his son, his perfect son. It sums it all up in Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, it was fitting for him, it was fitting for the father in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, who is Jesus, to perfect him through sufferings. Now, when it says to perfect him, it doesn't mean that it's getting imperfections out of him. That's not what it means. What it means to perfect him, uh, the, the word is uh, the word that we get uh, telos from or teleology. It means the goal, to bring Jesus to the goal of being a fully matured, fully complete, and fully glorious human being. We read in Luke, for example, about Jesus as a boy. And it says that Jesus as a boy grew in grace. He grew in God's favor, and it grew, he grew in the favor of men as well. 
So while Jesus was perfect from the time of his conception, he was perfect in the sense that he was flawless. There were no imperfections there. He was not perfect in the sense of being fully mature, fully developed, fully complete as a man. And so this is what God did. He perfected the author of our salvation. How did he perfect the perfect son? He perfected him, he says, through sufferings. And suffering is a word here that basically means when you're put into a situation where you have to bear up. You're put in, a, you're acted upon, to be acted upon. That's, that's kind of the idea. In other words, you're put into a situation which is not of your choosing, it's not of your liking, and there's nothing you can do about it, at least not righteously. And you have to bear up to do what is right. And so through trials and sufferings, God perfected the author of our salvation. And then it goes on to say that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. He who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, us, are all from one Father. That's what it's all about. For which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brethren. And so we look to Jesus to see how God deals with sons so that we understand how he's dealing with us. So we see the path of sons as one of being perfected through sufferings or perfected through trials. That is, brought to the goal, brought to the goal for which we were created and redeemed, brought to be what it means to be fully human and have a full relationship with God to show all the traits that a human should show, and ultimately to be brought to glory. So I mentioned before that suffering carries the idea of of bearing up, of bearing up under tough circumstances in which it would be very easy to take a different path. Now that's what Hebrews is talking about when it says this in chapter 5. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, that doesn't mean that he was brought from disobedience to obedience. That's our case. That was not his case. He still grew in obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So bearing up and being obedient to God in tough circumstances is a quality that sons must learn, develop, and be perfected in. And this kind of bearing up and being obedient is what the Bible calls steadfastness or endurance. Some translations will say endurance. I prefer the word steadfastness, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, steadfastness, the Greek word, means to remain behind. That's what it literally means, to remain behind. The idea is that of a soldier who remains behind uh, to stand in the breach when, when there's nobody else there. In the, in the ancient poem, the song of, of Roland, Roland remains with a, with a small band of soldiers in a mountain pass on a suicide mission to stand Uh, so that Charlemagne and the rest of the army can make it to freedom. So they stand in the pass, and they fight, and they die, 
so that Charlemagne and the rest of the army can make it to freedom. That's the idea of steadfastness. So endurance doesn't quite capture all of that. Steadfastness comes closer of standing, standing, remaining behind, standing. Others are running. Others are fleeing in the face of the enemy and the hardship, and you stand, you remain behind. That's the idea of steadfastness. And the tough circumstances under which steadfastness must be learned is what the Bible calls trials. Okay, listen to James, James chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, why should you consider it joy since it's not fun? There's nothing fun here. Okay? If, it's a, if it's fun, it's not a trial. All right? He says you consider it joy. You consider it joy. <laughs> he doesn't say it is joy. You consider it joy. Why? Well, because you know. You know certain things. Well, not necessarily, James. We don't necessarily know these things. But he's saying you should know some things. In fact, you need to remember these things in the midst of it. You know that the testing of your faith... And the testing has the idea of producing proof. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And again, the word, that you may reach your goal, that you may reach the goal of being the kind of person that God created you and redeemed you to be, which simply means that we're conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ the true man. So he says, the testing of your faith produces this quality called steadfastness. And he says that steadfastness needs to work its way through you. It needs to grow and it has to do a work in us and through us. And so it it permeates us. We grow in that steadfastness and that is what is necessary to bring us to our goal, to bring us to perfection so that we're lacking in nothing. So to be perfected as sons, we, like Jesus, must have steadfastness and let steadfastness have this work in us. Let it, let it work its way through us. We gain steadfastness by enduring difficult situations, which James calls trials. Again, which is the same Greek word as we have in our text here. So the purpose of trials, as James tells us, is to test our faith. And testing is a good thing because the purpose of this test is not failure, but success, perfection, and glory. When a teacher gives students a test, what is the purpose? To flunk all the kids? That's not the purpose of a good teacher giving a test. The purpose of the test is to prove, to show, to succeed, to show what they know, to show what they've learned, and to prove what they've learned. And this is where Scripture is coming from when it speaks of God testing or trying someone, such as Abraham or Jesus or so forth. The purpose of the test is success. The purpose of the test is glory. And in this sense, then, trials are from the Father, for He wants our success and our glory as sons. Now, this is such an important concept this whole concept of God sending tests, tough situations in which we must bear up and learn to remain behind, stand in the breach, do what is right, looking to God, being faithful. 
and God sending this to us to produce this steadfastness in us and letting it have its work in us. This is such an important concept in Scripture that there is an entire book devoted to this process. And it's one of the longest books in the Bible. It's the book of Job. Now consider the fact that in Job, Satan is involved in tempting Job. We know that. Satan is involved. But consider how the book begins. The book does not begin with Satan coming to God saying, I want a shot at Job. This whole thing, all these things that happen to Job, all this stuff that happens to him starts out with God bragging about Job. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And we might react, thanks. (laughs) Thanks, God. But no, he's bragging about his servant Job. And the whole book shows us how God often deals with sons. And what we see is that if you picture a father wrestling with a son, and as the son gets older, the father wrestles harder and harder and harder with the son, and it gets pretty rough. We see that God, he, he plays rough with his sons to bring them to have the kind of qualities uh, that, he, that he wants them to have. Consider Jacob wrestling with God, res- wrestling with uh, the angel of the Lord. You know, J- Jacob is wrestling and wrestling and wrestling, and God wrestles rough with Jacob. This thing goes on all night long, and God puts Jacob's hip out of joint. But what is the quality that Jacob shows? Even with his hip out of joint, he holds on. He says, I will not let go except you bless me. And that's exactly what God wants from us. He wants that from us. That's not a wrong attitude to cling to God in that way through tough circumstances and saying, God, I know I have all these problems. I know I have all these imperfections, but I'm not letting go. In Christ, I am not letting go. I'm holding on to you uh, for you to bless me. So this is a very important concept in Scripture. So even with Jesus, Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that Jesus himself was tempted in that which he suffered. He was tempted in that which he suffered. So we see that the trial necessarily involves temptation. If there's no temptation, if there's no possibility of doing wrong, if there's no possibility of failing the test, and if it wouldn't be in a lot of ways easier to go that route so that it's tempting, then it's not a trial. Okay. So a teacher gives students a test and the goal is success, to prove themselves. But anytime you have a a test, it automatically means, it necessarily means, that there is the opportunity to fail. Okay, And that's where the temptation comes in. So temptation is always present. And so when the desire comes up within us, and we simply have a desire and impulse in us to want to do that which is wrong, to want to do the unfaithful thing, the unrighteous thing, to turn away, to not walk in faith... 
That desire, James is telling us, that desire, that impulse to do what is wrong is not from God. He's saying that's coming from within us. That's coming from our flesh, okay? Because we're fallen. And so we have like an enemy in the camp, as it were. When the enemy outside us, whether it's circumstances or whether it's Satan, uh, provokes us to, to do something which is wrong or provides that opportunity, we have an enemy in the camp that says, yes, I think this is a good idea. I really think we should, and starts to provide all kinds of rationales why it's okay for us to do that and why we ought to do that. So we have an enemy within the camp. And James says we're carried away and we're enticed by our own desires. And then when desire, uh, it conceives into sin. And then when sin, sin is fully brought forth, it brings forth death. So you see two paths that James tells us. We have trials, which necessarily involve temptations. When we give in to the temptations, sin comes forth And sin leads us on a certain path, and when it's brought to full seed, it results in death. The other path is we bear up under trials, we do what is right, we look to God in faith and obedience. That produces steadfastness, the steadfastness works its way through us, and that results in glory. So this is the way it works. So, consider the case of Judas. We're told in the Gospel of John that at the Last Supper that Satan put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. But we also know that this is working in Judas's heart. We know he had various issues uh, going on. We know that he liked to pilfer the money from the money box and those kind of things. So we see The flesh gives Satan something that he can really work with. And we see them working together in the case of Judas. So Satan, unlike the father, desires that we fail. God sends us a test. He sends us a trial. Temptation is involved. Our flesh can be involved. Satan can be involved. Satan desires that we fail. God desires that we pass and that we succeed. So every test or trial necessarily entails the opportunity for failure, which means it involves temptation. If there's no temptation involved, then it's not a trial. It's not a test. So then, what attitude are we to have toward tests or trials? Well, Jesus shows us. Consider Jesus in the midst of temptation The first time when he's in the wilderness, he continually looks to God. He continually quotes scripture. He continually looks in faith to God's promises. And then we see him preeminently in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the cross. And he prays to the Father that if the Father is willing, that he will take this cup from him. Now, consider the fact that Jesus knows the story. He's not confused about what's going on. He has already told his disciples a number of times, this is what is going to happen. This is what must happen. This is what uh, must happen for the scriptures to be fulfilled. He says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, and he's going to be crucified. And the third day he's going to rise again. Now, the disciples, were told, didn't understand what he was saying. 
But he had told them very clearly. So Jesus knows the story. And he knows the Father's promises to him to exalt him and to glorify him lie through the cross. Psalm 16, which Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, a psalm of David, is really a prayer of Christ, where he talks about the affliction and so forth that he's suffering. But it says that he knows that the Father is not going to abandon him to Sheol, is not going to abandon his soul to Sheol, nor will he allow his Holy One to see corruption. That's the promise. Jesus knows the promise, and Jesus is looking to the Father through the promise. So I don't think Jesus in this prayer is asking the Father to rewrite the story. I think Jesus is asking the Father to enable him to bear up in that story, to enable him to overcome temptation. Which What were the temptations the devil provided him in the wilderness? To forego the cross, to try to go a different way, to try to go an easier way. So he's asking the Father to enable him to overcome temptation and the evil one and to succeed in the test the Father set before him. So we see Jesus, a perfect man, but he doesn't look to himself, does he? He doesn't say, I'm a perfect man. He doesn't even say, I'm the God-man, and therefore I'm bulletproof. We see Jesus as the perfect son looking not to himself, but looking to the Father. And this is the attitude of a true son toward tests and trials and temptations. A true son, and let me, let me just explain very quickly. I keep, why does it say sons when half of us are female? Think of it as sons and daughters. It's because we're in Christ. Christ is the son. In him, we take on his identity, and that's why he speaks that way. But if it helps you, young ladies, to think of sons and daughters, then do so. Okay? And so he looks to the father And he asks the Father to enable him to avoid temptations when possible. That's what a perfect son does. He asks the Father to enable him to avoid temptations when possible, which is why we pray, lead us not into temptation. But a perfect son accepts what the Father sends him, looking to the Father that he might glorify him and display the faith and the steadfastness in doing what is right. Now, in this very same passage where Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays this prayer, Peter shows us the attitude we are not to have. Because Peter declares self-confidently, Lord, I am willing to go with you to prison and to death, even if all fall away, I will never fall away. Now, this is in response to Jesus saying, you're all going to scatter. You're all going to go away. And Peter says, not so, not me. Even if all fall away, I will never fall away. I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. So Peter is confident in himself. He feels self-confident. He's bulletproof. When it comes to trials and temptations, Peter basically says, bring it. One at a time, all at once, doesn't matter to me, just bring it. Well, in that same context, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded permission to sift him like wheat. And he tells him, 
before the rooster crows, before the dawn comes, you're going to deny me three times. Right? So we see in Peter an attitude of self-confident, and, and we see the result that that produces from Satan, which is, I want a piece of him. Let me add this one. Now, Jesus tells Peter, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. That basically, that you're going to make it through this. Jesus keeps telling the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. And I think that's the context for his prayer to the Father. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Now, this is not what Peter did. He didn't watch and pray that he enter not into temptation. It is what Jesus did. And it is what Jesus is telling us to do in the Lord's Prayer. The theme is that as true sons, we look to the Father, number one, to avoid temptation when possible. Number two, to not be sifted by the evil one. And three, if we encounter trials and temptations that accompany them, we accept them in the Father's providence. We count them all joy. We know that the Father intends by them that we succeed by displaying steadfastness and faithfulness, and that that is the proof of our faith. And we know that, as Peter tells us, the proof of our faith to God is more precious than gold. Now, it doesn't feel glorious in the moment. It does not feel glorious in the moment. Nobody, it never feels glorious when you win the Congressional Medal of Honor. It feels glorious when you receive it, it doesn't feel glorious when you win it. When you win it, it feels like I'm going to die. My life is over right here. This is it. That's what it feels like, not glorious at all. But we have to remember that to God, this is more precious than gold. Consider if you had a little son or a little daughter, and on some occasion you're watching them play with other children, but they don't know you're watching. And you see them being provided enticements by other children to do something that's wrong, to lie, to do something, you know, uh, that's wrong. And your son or your daughter stands and says, no, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. I'm not going to do that. Here's what's right over here. And they don't really care what the rest are going to do. Would that be precious to you to see that? When they don't know you're watching, well, you know that it would. It's more precious than gold to see that quality in your son or in your daughter. And that's what Peter is telling us uh, about God and his attitude toward us. So following Jesus, the perfect man, what did he do? He looks to the Father. He's not like Peter, bulletproof. That's not the way he displays himself. He looks to the Father in all things. It says in Hebrews 5, it gives us more detail. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of this, his piety. Jesus was about to go someplace nobody had ever been. Now, plenty of people in the human history had died before Jesus. But nobody had ever entered the grave like Jesus did, a perfect man, who, who uh, could not be touched by death in his own right, who's going to enter into death on behalf of others, bearing their sins, 
with the promise from his father that when he dies on a cross and a crucifixion in this shameful, disgraceful, and painful way, that the father is going to do something that's never been done in human history, which is going to be the resurrection. And it's important to distinguish resurrection from resuscitation. Now, a a few days before, Jesus had... It uses the phrase, brought Lazarus back from the dead. Okay, he brought him out of the grave. But that wasn't real resurrection. That's resuscitation. Lazarus' body is being reunited with his soul. In other words, Lazarus is going to die again. Okay, but it's a picture of resurrection. Resurrection is not going into the grave this way and then coming back out the same way. That's resuscitation. Resurrection is going into the grave this way and busting out the other side, okay? And so that's what's never happened, and Jesus trusts the Father's promise that that's what's going to happen. And so it says that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears. This is wrestling. This is Jesus holding on to the Father, basically saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's crying out to God. The Christian faith is not a stoic faith. When we talk about bearing up and we talk about steadfastness and stuff like that, it's easy to think in terms of stiff upper lip. You just kind of stoically, you sit there, you bear it, you bear it grimly. You just, that's not Christian. That's stoic. (laughs) There is a stoic faith, stoicism. That's not Christian faith. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't have a stiff upper lip. What he did was, is he cried out to his father with loud cries and petitions. And you can read it in the Psalms. A lot of times the Psalms cry out to God and say, Lord, why? Why is this happening? Now, there's a way to ask God, why is this happening to me? That's a function of unbelief. But there's also a way to cry out to God and say, God, why is this happening? Why do you seem so far from me? Why does it seem like you're turning your face from me? Why can I not sense your presence? There's a way to cry out to God, why? That's a product of faith and not unbelief. And that's certainly what we see uh, exemplified for us in the scriptures. So this is what Jesus did. He looked to the Father in everything, and that is what we're to do. So, and this is important. It's important that we get this. Being a perfect son does not mean having no needs. Being a perfect son does not mean having no needs. For Jesus, the perfect son, had needs. Jesus needed daily bread, did he not? Did he not hunger? Yes, he did. Jesus did not need forgiveness, but he did need to forgive, didn't he? Which is why he prayed on the cross, Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why does he need to forgive? Why does he need to seek other people's good in this way? To be like the Father, because that's what the Father does. The Father seeks the goods of sinners and provides forgiveness for them. So, as I've said before, being forgiven doesn't make us like the Father. Forgiving does. And so Jesus must be, as a perfect son, like the Father. And finally, the need to overcome temptation and the evil one. Did Jesus have that need? Yes, he did. So being a perfect son 
consists not in having no needs, but in perfectly looking to the Father to meet those needs. Being a perfect son does not consist in having no needs. It consists in perfectly looking to the Father to meet those needs. That is what Jesus did, and that is what he is calling us to do, and that is why he gives us this prayer. This is the prayer of a son or a daughter. So, what shall we do then to apply these things in our lives as we go forward? Well, first of all, as Paul says in Romans thirteen fourteen, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in faith in him, being conformed to his image, means that we make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. James says one of the places temptation comes from is just within. It's our desires for things that are not good for us and not glorifying to God and not good for other people, but we want them. We want them. Okay? And he, Paul says, make no provision. So... Each one of us has particular struggles. We have particular besetting sins. We have particular appetites that are not good, that arise within us. And we have to fight our own fight. It's no good for us to do a good job with somebody else's besetting sins. That's their issues that they have to deal with. We have to confront our own. And we have to, therefore, in various ways, arrange our environment so that we make no provision for the flesh in regard to its desires in us. It's going to be different for me than for you. Each one of you will be different. But there are going to be some ways, because of our fallenness, which you're going to have to arrange your environment and say, you know what, that thing there, that's okay for others. That's okay for other Christians, because they don't have the problem I have. That is not okay for me. That's not okay for me because of my particular flesh. I have to make no provision. So that's the first thing that we want to do. Consider, are there areas where you're making provision for your flesh? You're allowing the temptations to be around so that your desires, uh, which are not good, are aroused. That's the first thing. The second thing is when we're coming to, when we're moving beyond appetites, and appetites can be evil, but they're pretty simple. When you get into the more advanced forms of temptations and trials, it also always involves a stretching of time. It involves bearing up under a period of time. If it only lasted for a minute, we could deal with it without a big issue. The problem is, is it goes on. It goes on for days or weeks or months or years. And that's what provides uh, the particular difficulty. First thing is we don't want to be like Peter. We don't want to be confident in ourselves. Now, somebody, maybe somebody who's confident in God can kind of look at from a certain angle the same as somebody who's self-confident. But they're very different things. Being self-confident is a very different thing than being confident in God and looking to Him in faith and His promises. We don't want to be like Peter. We don't want to strut along and say, bring it... Um, I'm never going to fall. If they ever start killing Christians, I'll take a bullet with a smile on my face. You know, they can stick hot pokers under my fingernails or whatever, and I'm no problem. 
we're not supposed to have that kind of self-confidence. We're supposed to look in God. And the way we should, if we ever consider out and out persecution, what we, the way we should think of it is this way. God, please be with me. If that ever comes about, don't let me deny you. Don't let me falter at that moment. Uh, give me the strength to bear up and glorify you. We want to be like Jesus and we want to be like Job. Now, the first thing that we have to do to be like Jesus and be like Job is we have to see trials for what they are, which means that not while you're listening to this sermon, but when you're in the moment and you have to bear up and it's not fun and it feels inglorious. There's nobody watching. Nobody's going to throw a parade. Nobody's going to give you a prize for making it through a few hours of this. In that moment, you have to see it for what it is. You have to see yourself up there on the big movie screen and recognize what's really going on. That's why we have the book of Job. That's why we have so many things in Scripture. This is a trial. This is a test. Just at the moment in time where you feel like you've been shuffled off into the shadows of the stage of life and nobody even remembers you, let alone is looking for you. That is the moment when you're center stage and the spotlight is on you. You are the star of the show now. Not when we want to be the star of the show. But when the trial and the temptation comes and we feel like we're off in the shadows, off in the wings. That's when we're center stage. That's when we have the opportunity to prove the genuineness of our faith. Which is more precious to God than gold. And to have that steadfastness work into us and to work us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, want, we can't begin to obey if we don't see trials in the moment for what they are and take them as the opportunity. If you want a good example of somebody who really did that uh, to a real exemplary degree, read the story of Joseph. His life was not easy But he was always in the moment able to see what was going on. And that's why he said to his brothers, look, don't don't uh, condemn yourself for what you did, which was sell me into slavery. Uh, Give me up for dead. Um, Because he said you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And we want to respond in faith. So this week in prayer, ask yourself these questions. Are there any areas in my life where... There's a situation that's prolonged that's not to my liking. I would like it to be different, but it's not different. That's a trial. Ask yourself, what are those areas? And look to the Father in those areas. Look first that you be able to show steadfastness and faithfulness to God. And then it is not wrong to ask God, having Him having taught you what He wants to teach you, It's not wrong to ask him to remove it. So ask yourself, do you have areas like that going on in your life? Ask you, what are they? And if you don't have anything like that, then go back and do it again, because I think you do. I think you do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.